Hey friend, when was the last time you listened to a podcast that told you everything you needed to know to break into or do your work in the field of continuing medical education and continuing education for health professionals? If it's been a hot minute, or like never, you've arrived at the right podcast. In fact, you've arrived at Right Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. Are you feeling stuck in your work? Are you looking for inspiration from your peers? Are you looking for a way to break into this incredibly rewarding and intellectually satisfying field? Well, Right Medicine is here to offer you guidance and strategies as you navigate all phases of CME and CE creation. Every Wednesday, join me, Alex Housen, a medical writer specializing in CME and CE content creation, as I host thoughtful, provocative, and rich conversations with guests about adult learning, content creation techniques, effective formats in CME and CE, and trends in healthcare that influence the type of content we create. Right Medicine is here to motivate you to learn and grow as a CME and CE professional, wherever you are in the content creation process. If your work involves planning, designing, creating, delivering or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. If you have a background in journalism or were an English or writing major at college, and you're wondering if it's possible to make it as a freelance medical writer with that type of background, then today you're in for a reassuring treat. Welcome to a new episode of the Right Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and today I'm speaking with Michelle Rizzo, a former journalist and an experienced medical writer who brings a unique patient perspective to her work in CME and CE. Michelle shares how she stumbled into medical writing after having a vision correction surgery, which sparked her interest in researching the procedure in depth. This experience of immersing herself in the medical literature as a patient led her to eventually pursue medical writing as a career. In our conversation, Michelle explains how she puts her journalism background to work when she's writing needs assessments and how she starts by vividly describing patients' experiences to build a compelling story and pull readers into the narrative. Michelle also discusses strategies like using bullet points, graphics, and pruning content ruthlessly to make sure she's on the side of the reader in the content she creates. Join us to explore how Michelle infuses CME and CE content with empathy, storytelling, and clarity to keep the patient at the centre. And if you want tips and tactics on how to level up your CME and CE content, subscribe to the Right Medicine newsletter. The link is in the show notes. Let's dive in. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, thank you. Thanks for inviting me to join you in this podcast. I, I feel really honored. Oh, it's great to have you here. I'm, I'm excited to hear a little bit more about your work and how you approach medical writing in general and writing in CME in particular. So, Please tell Right Medicine listeners who you are and something about your current work. Okay, well, I think I kind of was born a writer. I kind of knew since about the third grade that I would somehow make my living as a writer. I didn't know how, but it was, it was funny. Like 
there's always this debate in medicine about nature versus nurture in the way a person turns out. And I actually didn't meet my father until I was 30 years old and eight months pregnant with my second son. And when I did meet him, I found out he was an English professor at the University of Northern Colorado. And we were so much alike in the way that we wrote, in the way we expressed ourselves. And yet we had never had any exposure to each other. Mm. And so that kind of really cemented in my butt that by that time I was already being paid to be a writer, which I've, you know, I've been paid to be a writer since I was like 18 years old. But that, <laughs> that probably goes away from what you asked. Well, let, let me ask this, Michelle. Could you share something about the work that you currently do and how you find yeah. your way there? Yeah, that's, that's what I was getting to. So currently I'm working in a, a medium-sized CME company as uh, an associate medical director, which is really kind of, I find is a fancy way of saying medical writer, <laughs> so, which suits me well. I mean, I, I love medicine. I always have. I was kind of a weird kid. I used to read the dictionary and I used to read a PDR that my mother picked up in a garage sale in like 1974 when the PDR was only like an inch thick. <laughs> I used to read that for fun. But as an associate uh, medical director, I really you know, produce a lot of content in a variety of huge variety of therapeutic areas. You know, it can vary day to day from atopic dermatitis to, you know, hematologic cancers and back and forth. And it's almost like you really have to know every disease state known to mankind and all the clinical trials and all the issues. <laughs> so it, it's a lot to learn about and to retain and to communicate. And I find it a challenge, but I love it. I mean, I really consider myself blessed to have stumbled into this career. Because I've learned at, at the feet, sometimes of, of some of the best, you know, the, the biggest names in, in different therapeutic areas at the top of their field. And I've been paid to do it. So I just feel like I've really been blessed to learn medicine in this way. Because I've been learning at the same time that I've been, you know, educating people. So I'm learning along with the people that I'm trying to help learn you know, and CME to help learn different things. I love that. I love that description. I think there are many of us who would recognize that sense of sometimes what feels like privilege to be among people who are at the top of their game and consummate professionals mm -hmm. and willing and able to kind of share their expertise in a way that's fluid and accessible. Mm -hmm. and Absolutely. And helps people learn and to be part of that whole kind of education enterprise you said a number of things that I, I want to kind of dig into. One is, uh, well, first of all, just for clarification, when you say PDR, I'm, I'm assuming you mean the physician's desk reference. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted sorry. to clarify yeah. that for listeners. <laughs> yep. Some people might not be very familiar with that. The second thing <laughs> well, is... It's all online now. Right. It's not published anymore. I exactly. I don't think. <laughs> I, I assume it is. The second thing is, you know, you mentioned currently being an associate medical director. I think this is one of the areas that when people move into medical writing and, and CME writing in particular, they're not necessarily aware that a potential lateral move is to become more strategic about content direction. 
which is part of what I'm assuming you do as an associate medical director. So could you speak to that just a little bit? Uh, Content direction, it's really all about understanding what the issues are in whatever therapeutic area you're asked to write about. And that can be difficult sometimes if you don't have, especially if you don't have a clinical background like I don't. I don't have a medical degree. I don't have any sort of science degree. And so it's been difficult to sometimes to understand what are the issues. And I require, I find it requires a lot of reading and rereading until I really feel like I understand it in order to write about it. But, but as I've often said and joked with my colleagues, just because I've never, <laughs> I've never, uh, heard of a certain disease because we often work in a lot of orphan disease areas mm. doesn't mean I can't write about it. And so it involves you having to learn about it first before you understand what the issues are, before you understand what the, where the gaps are, before you understand what, what the problems are that the patients face, what the problems are that, that the clinicians face. It's a lot of reading and educating yourself first before you can hope to educate someone else. Absolutely. And when you're doing that background reading, you're not just reading the clinical literature. You're reading different types of material in order to get that full picture. Can you say a little bit about how you kind of plot out your reading when you're coming to a new therapeutic area? Yeah, no, that's a good question because we have done a lot of work in my company on different orphan diseases. And sometimes we'll have a medical meeting uh, about new projects coming up. And I'll be told, well, you're going to write about X, Y, Z. I mean, lots of times in our, in medicine, diseases are often referred to. It's an alphabet soup. Mm. You know, it's referred to by different acronyms and letters. And, and sometimes I'll say, what the heck is that? <laughs> For sure. It's like I've never heard of it before. And orphan diseases, which I, you know, I, I'm not sure if the audience will know, it really is defined as any disease that affects 200,000 or fewer people within this country. So I've been asked to write about a few orphan diseases and, and it's like, wow, where do you start? And sometimes I'll just start with Google. And of course that will bring up, I'll bring up patient-oriented stuff for the most part, mm-hmm. but that's good because I want to come at it first from a patient perspective. I want to know what the patients are feeling and thinking, what they're going through. And so I'll read some of that, and then that will lead me into the different societies like the National Organization of Rare Diseases, NORD, mm-hmm. and there are others as well, and then I'll learn more about it from the different societies that are, exist in place to support rare diseases and the patients who have it and the clinicians who treat it. And so I'll I'll go to those places first often, and then I'll start really doing a deep dive into PubMed. And I'm always looking, especially if you're writing a needs assessment, I'm always looking for the most recent publications. And PubMed is really great because you can set up filters so that you're only looking at you know, only things within the last five years or so, mm-hmm. which is really good because it gives you a lot of really good recent information. But then, of course, you know, you have to learn and find out what what are the pivotal trials in that particular disease state. And very often 
they're, you know, they're older, they're established trials. Sometimes they're not. I mean, sometimes the disease state is so new and so rare, and there just hasn't been any therapeutic treatment for it in, in such a, such a long time. You know, it's, it's only recently, in other words, that there's been any, been any therapies for it. So a lot of times some of the trials will be recent or new, mm. but yeah, so then I do a deep dive into PubMed and then I start looking for you know, patient resources. What do patients say about it? Are there any surveys for patients who have this disease and what do they think about their treatment? What do they think about their doctors? And that just really sets the stage for what I can say in an ease assessment for what physicians really need to learn. I love that you start with patients and we're going to look at a couple of examples of your work to kind of demonstrate to listeners the way you use that information to put together a story for for a needs assessment. But there's a couple of other things that you said I'd like to kind of dig into a little bit first. One is, okay. oh, and by the way, I'm really glad that you shared that you look for surveys for, you know, patient experience. I like to look for qualitative studies as well, because you can really mine those for illustrative quotes and yeah. really get that sense of lived experience in a way that sometimes you yeah. can't with surveys. And of course, you often find a lot of similar surveys or qualitative studies with clinicians themselves. And I think, you know, one of the questions yeah. I get from learners is, you know, where you find that information. And of course, there's more and more of that information available now to to get that really fine-tuned sense of what some of the challenges are for, for both patients and, and clinicians. But you said, you know, a few moments ago that you you stumbled into CME. But I think part of the key to explaining that that stumbling lies in your earlier path. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about some of yeah. the work that you did before you stumbled into CME, because I think we always find a kind of clear thread that yeah. explains how we ended up in this field. Yeah. I've been asked this question a lot because I I didn't study any biologic science and I find that most medical writers were studying to be a clinician first. And they were studying for some biologic science, you know, studying some biological field, and they had to write a paper along the way. And, and you know, somehow they they fell into writing. And then they, it seems like the, there are fewer people who come up from the perspective that I did, where they were a writer first. Mm. And then they fell into medicine. So it's kind of the opposite. I was a journal. I had a journalism background first. I mean, I, I think I said I kind of knew when I was a kid I was going to be a writer. And I majored in, I was high school newspaper and, you know, all that sort of thing. Editorial writer, won a couple of editorial awards, state awards in, in my high school. And, and the only thing I knew about writing then was other than being a not writer of novels, you had to be going to newspapers. I didn't know that there was any other way to be a writer. And then I, but I discovered medicine a long way. Like I said, I, I always loved medicine. I used to read the PDR for fun and, and the dictionary. I was a weird kid, <laughs> but, you know, I, I just found I've stumbled, kind of stumbled into it from the patient perspective. I had a, 
a journalist. I majored in journalism in college. And I was writing for a while for the Philadelphia Inquirer as a stringer. Mm -hmm. But I was really super, super, super nearsighted. At the time, radial keratotomy was a really big procedure that was getting a lot of of, uh, lay press. And I thought, oh, I really want that because I was severely nearsighted. And so I checked around. I knew somebody who had actually had a surgery done by a a local surgeon who was pretty big in Philadelphia area named uh, Frederick Kremer, who now, by the way, is a good friend of mine. But anyway, this was, this was a long time ago. I went to him as a patient and asked him, you know, about surgery for, and he told me, no, radiocarototomy is not going to help you. You're too far gone for that. You need this really radical procedure that, as it turns out, only about six people in the whole country knew could do. I mean, as a surgeon called uh, freeze keratomalusis. Mm. And I thought, what the heck is that? I was totally unprepared for that. So I got myself into the Wills Eye Hospital Library and uh, managed to find, pull every single journal article I could find about freeze keratomalusis and copied them all. And at, the, at that time, you had to pay like a dime a page <laughs> a copier. And I took them home and I read them with a medical dictionary next to me. And I read them and reread them because this meant doing some radical things to my eyes. Mm-hmm. To It was actually going to freeze and shave off the top of my cornea. And so I felt like I really have to understand this pretty well in order to agree to this. And that's kind of what got me seriously started mm-hmm. into medical writing. And I, I asked uh, Dr. Kremer about, they had a little newsletter in there that they gave to patients that was just really kind of bad. And, and I told him, I said, look, you know, I can do this. I, d- I did have the procedure, by the way, mm-hmm. and it was pretty successful. But with a lot of uh, follow-up visits, I saw that he was doing this newsletter. And I offered to write it for him and to put it together for him. And he agreed. And so I, I, I learned a lot from medicine from him. So I watched surgeries from him. And in other words, I came at it Bottom line is I came at it from completely from the patient perspective. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got into medical writing, really roundabout way and very unique and different way of getting into medical writing. And from there, I went to CME. I was one of the founding editors of the American Journal of Managed Care. And I did their supplements, which were all accredited. And that was the first time I'd ever, they were initially accredited through Montefiore, Albert Einstein, and then later through Johns Hopkins. That was my introduction to CME. I knew nothing about CME before that. And that was like in 1995. (laughs) And I think that's probably where I first came across your name was in association with with the journal. I just want to pull out a couple of perils there for listeners, especially for medical writers who've kind of moved into CME and who don't necessarily have a science or a medical background. Again, mm. this is this is a question I hear a lot is, you know, do you need that kind of background? And I think your story illustrates yeah. perfectly that, first of all, you don't. Absolutely. If you have writing skills, you you can. It helps enormously, but you don't. Yeah. You can learn it. You can hone those writing skills and apply them to medical and scientific content. But the, And you can learn, as you demonstrated, by sitting down and reading material and you know getting getting the lay of the land and incidentally 
that process of extensive reading to really immerse yourself in a therapeutic area or disease state is uh, is something I do as well. I mean, I have a background as a trauma OR nurse, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I have a science background. And it it always takes me a fair amount of time to really, you know, immerse myself at the initial stages of a project yeah. to to really feel. Yeah that I, I know what's going on. But once I know what's going on, you know, the rest of the writing is is much more straightforward. But the other thing that I wanted to highlight was, was this aspect of really dr- digging deep into your experience, your lived experience as, as a patient and using that as a lens into healthcare, a lens into clinical practice and really seeing it from that perspective. I think that gives you something unique and there are a lot of writers out there who can who can dig into a similar type of of experience. Well, let's talk about how you actually use that patient lens in some of the work that you do. You mentioned needs assessments, and obviously many of our listeners yeah. are very familiar with that type of uh, writing project, that kind of of product. I wonder if you could read something, you know, read the beginning of a, a needs assessment. Just to share with listeners the distinct approach that you take to these types of documents. This episode of Write Medicine is brought to you by Write CME Pro, a membership driven community that provides skills, scaffolding, and support for medical writers who want to create CME content with confidence. Write CME Pro gives you access to expert perspectives to help you build your CME writing skills, a portfolio accelerator to hold space so that you can create stunning samples to show your prospects, group coaching to help you build foundational and expert knowledge in CME, and more. Write CME Pro is a community for people like you who are ready to grow their CME writing niche, or niche, if that's how you say it. See the show notes for more details. Okay. I'm just looking at some of them that I have. I'm kind of known for needs assessments for weaving a story. Needs assessments don't need to be a huge data dump. I've read so many needs assessments and they all start out the same way, Mm -hmm. where they start out with, this disease affects blah, 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 so many people, blah, blah, blah. I mean, they all start out with the prevalence and incidents, and it's just fact after fact after fact thrown at the reader. There's no story woven in there. And I think this is something that my journalism background gives me. You have to pull the reader in. Otherwise, they're not going to care. And you've got to make it something that, you know, you've got to make it readable in a way that, that will draw their interest. So I try to bring a human aspect to it. So let's see. I wrote about hereditary angioedema, which is an orphan disease. I wrote about this uh, last year. It's a disease in which there's a, an unexpected swelling. I mean, people are affected with it. It's not completely unexpected because they know they have it. But it can strike you at any point where it's a histamine sort of a reaction where your mouth and your airway passages can swell to the point where you can't breathe anymore. So it can actually be life-threatening. And 
if you've seen pictures of people with this disease, they really, their, their features are distorted. They almost look monstrous, actually. And so I, in, in looking at these pictures, I thought about these poor people and what they go through. And often these attacks, the H, they call them hereditary edema, angioedema attacks or HAE attacks. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they're, they're rather unexpected. Often they learn that the patients themselves will recognize the triggers, but still it's not, you know, it's all not altogether expected. And so I tried to get into the mindset of the patient and what, what happens with these poor people. And so this is how I started out my needs assessment. So people who can unexpectedly and quickly transformed into a distorted, barely recognizable version of themselves have provided grist for novels and movies for generations. These mystifying characters fascinate us. And when we're finished reading the book or watching the movie, we tell ourselves that such transitions are only fiction. But for people with hereditary angioedema, HAE, they're not fiction. Such metamorphoses are frightening and bewildering reality. HAE is a rare genetic condition that manifests itself in attacks of extreme swelling that can result in pain and distortion of the face or other parts of the body. If airway tissues are affected, these attacks can also be life-threatening. While the swelling will typically resolve, even without treatment with two to four days, the attacks can vary wildly and in any affected areas, severity and or frequency. The inconsistency comprises health-related quality of life, compromises, sorry, health-related quality of life for the people with HAE, imposing a negative psychosocial impact on education, career, and interpersonal relationships. So that's the sort of story I try to bring, like draw a reader first into how does it really impact people? Yeah, it's very evident. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that we've, that we've done in our membership, right, CME Pro is have, and, and also I teach a course on needs assessments. And so supporters from various pharmaceutical companies come to talk to students about what they're looking for from a needs assessment. And of course, one of the things they always say is, is some sense of story, but I think that can be quite challenging for some medical writers to to think about because they're very attached, as you said earlier, they're very attached to the clinical data. And I think this is a really beautiful example of how, you know, that first paragraph that you read is just a couple of sentences, but right away it it pulls you in as the reader or the listener into that sense of lived experience, into that sense of bewilderment and distortion. And then you can get to the clinical information and if it's a new drug area, the clinical trials and right. and so on. So when you are approaching a needs assessment from the patient perspective, can you talk a little bit about how you then develop the rest of the content? So, yeah, so I, I start out with a patient perspective and I end with a patient perspective, which is, you know, the traditional way you may have been taught in school to write an essay. You start with a problem or, you know, a point of interest. And then you end with the culmination of that by offering 
at the very end, you know, sort of a conclusion and how it resolved or didn't resolve or how it needs more work. And I think we were all kind of taught that in school, or at least we should have been. Not so sure anymore. <laughs> but that's sort of, so I always start out with the patient perspective and I'll weave a couple of patient stories in between. And on often needs assessments will have case histories, you know, it, uh, involved in the agenda, et cetera. So that's another point at which you can involve the patient needs or the patient perspective. But the rest of the needs assessment generally kind of reverts back to what clinicians need, mm -hmm. what clinicians need to learn, but what clinicians need to learn about treating the patient. Because ultimately, the bottom line is we have to help patients. You know, we have to make outcomes better. <laughs> and that, in turn, that will help clinicians. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the bottom line. It's always about the patient having to help the patient help them to recover, help them to improve. I mean, obviously nobody can live forever. So some of these sort of uh, stories about cures for cancer, et cetera, are kind of irritating to me because nobody can live forever. But, you know, the, in the journey of life along the way, clinicians could certainly help patients to feel better, to function better, to have a better quality of life to live a little bit longer. I mean, there is such a thing to say that, you know, there's benefit to having more time on this plane. You know, does this approach, starting with the patient experience, help in writing other types of CME deliverables, like actual content for activities? Yeah, no, I, yeah, I do find that because very often, you know, we'll start off doing a, a slide set or a paper, you know, white paper of some sort. It does help to, to start out with the impact. What's the impact of this disease mm -hmm. on people? Yeah. That's what this is all about. Bottom line. What's the impact of any particular disease on people? And so it's, it's helpful to start out with that and then to sort of sum it up again in the summary slide saying things, something like, you know, here, here's what the impact is. And here's what this treatment can do for those mm -hmm. people. Here's what clinical studies have shown, what benefit can be derived from these different treatments. You know, sort of sum it, summing it up that way. Mm -hmm. So it always goes back to the patient, ultimately. And to, to kind of wrap up, because we're coming towards the end of our, our time, you know, many medical writers are on the side of the data when they're writing for continuing medical yeah. education. And data are important. The data are important, but sometimes the data are overemphasized. Yes. To the exclusion of that lived experience of the patient and also the challenges that clinicians face, which are often not necessarily directly tied to the data. But my question is, how can writers make sure they're on the side of the reader when they're developing CME materials? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Yeah, the, there's a lot of data, a lot of data. And it's the, I find the hardest part I have when I'm researching any particular disease state, even some of the orphan diseases for which there isn't a lot, comparatively speaking, there's just so much out there now that my hardest problem really is, is trying to decide what to rule out. Because ultimately, you can't write a 50-page needs assessment. You can't write 150 slide, you know, slide deck. 
you've got to be able to weed it out. And that, that's tough. That, that's just, that's the hardest part to me. Like, what isn't so important? What is? How to weed it out? So that, you know, that's, that's always a struggle. And so I find like, you know, I take, I tend to take way too long researching way more than my deadlines will allow me. <laughs> and so I know at some point I have to cut it off. And I actually listened to the podcast that you did where you said at some point when you're reading and you're sort of reading the same things and getting the same concepts over and over again, you know, you've researched enough. So at that point I cut it off <laughs> and I start at that point. I have enough of the story woven around in my head that I know what the issues are. Mm. And so I, I start, you know, consolidating them. And the hard part, you know, when you put it all on paper is to have in mind what the reader goes through. The reader has not gone through your thought process. The reader has not gone through your research level that he or she is coming at it cold, mm -hmm. doesn't know what you know. And so you've got to be on their side. You've got to be able to step outside yourself, put yourself into someone else's shoes and look at it the way they're looking at it. And it's really tough to do. So you, you have to look at it and go, wow, does that really communicate? And sometimes, you know, I find I've spent an hour and a half on a paragraph or a slide and I, you know, it's really struggled over it once in a while. And I'll look at it and go, God, it just really doesn't work mm -hmm. for, for an outside reader. And I'll have, sometimes I'll have to get rid of it and it's painful to do. Yeah. You know, it's, you have to know when to edit, when to cut back, you know, when to say, all right, I have to cast my ego and the time I've spent aside and just get rid of this. You know, it's tough to do. Also, there are, there are things that tools you need to know as a writer to use. I was going to ask you that. Yeah. What, 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 what are your preferred tools? Yes. Bullet points are wonderful. So at some point, instead of just saying the trial found this and this and this and this, and this is the primary endpoint and this is the secondary endpoints and these are the findings and these were the trial alarms and these were Instead of writing that all into one gray, huge paragraph, break it up into bullet points. Use bolding. Use italics. Use color. Use drop caps. Mm -hmm. Use different formatting things to make. I mean, writing should not only read well, it should visually be appealing. It should be clean. It should have some figures and graphics. And a lot of times I'll use graphics. Instead of spending, you know, 5,000, like I always say, a picture is worth a thousand words. Mm -hmm. Instead of spending, you know, a page and a half detailing a pathogenesis, you know, pathophysiology, I'll, I'll find a really good figure and use that. Mm -hmm. And then just use a, a something underneath it to say what this figure illustrates. That's what's being on the side of the reader. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think that's great advice. I was just going to say there that that process of the reading that you do and the preparation that you do in order to understand an area is necessary for your understanding, but it's not all necessary to go into the final content. And I think that's you know right. something that we, we learn by doing and definitely contributes to that process of, of pruning. When you hit that moment, as you described, of the slide that doesn't quite fit, that's usually the signal mm -hmm. that, okay, I needed that in order to understand what I'm doing here, but the yes. audience or the reader or the learner doesn't need that or the presenter doesn't need that. 
Yes, there, there's so much to, to this field of writing where you're learning along the way Yeah, that you're training yourself as you go along. And so s- sometimes you put in an awful lot of hours just doing that and you're writing things that ultimately never see the light of day. But you had to do that in order to build what you needed to communicate to others. Yes, so you did. It, it's tough. The editing, the editing part, I love being an editor for other people's work. It's easy. It's fun. <laughs> but when you're editing your own stuff, that's tough because you know how much work and time and research you put into a particular page or a particular paragraph or a particular slide. And it's tough to go, I'm going to have to kill it. <laughs> you know, it's tough. You know, absolutely. I think, uh, I think the self-edit is definitely the topic for another podcast episode. For now, Michelle Rizzo, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and insights with listeners of Right Medicine. Thank you. I'm so honored to have been invited and and hope that other people can learn from my struggles. (laughs) I have absolutely no doubt that they will. Thank you. All right. Thank you. If you'd like to connect with me or today's guest or access any of the resources we talked about, check out the show notes for this episode. They're on my website, where you'll also find additional resources. Find the show notes at alexhausen.com forward slash write W-R-I-T-E dash medicine dash podcast. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the Write Medicine newsletter where you'll find bi-weekly tips, tools and resources to help you create continuing medical education content with confidence. And thank you for listening today. Word of mouth is the most meaningful way we can help listeners find us and reach a wider audience. So please share this episode with a friend, a colleague or a client who might find the podcast helpful. And if you enjoy listening to the podcast, please write a favourable review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or share your testimonial on the dedicated testimonial link, which is also in the show notes.